At the end of the day, all of this talk and all of this BS is really about relevance. Are you ready relevant to the future or not? And if you're not meaningfully and measurably solving for some of the challenges we're facing in the future, it's not do good CSR off to the side. This is going to be the core focus of business and the preoccupation of people who buy your stuff. If you're not doing that, you're going to be irrelevant. Don't you want to be relevant, kids? That's the core premise of this conversation today. And my question is, is it that easy? Is it that simple just to make that change? We dive into today with We First Branding's founder and CEO, Simon Mainwaring, folks who is a futurist as well. He's a real leader. He's someone that believes the leadership needs to change. And if that's you, you want to join this conversation, you want to talk to Simon, you want to ask questions on this show, go online, realleaders.com, podcast events. That's realleaders.com, podcast events. Go on there, RSVP for the next episode on September 21st, 2020. That's Monday, September 21st at 4 p.m. Pacific to join the conversation with Simon and myself as we begin to keep it real at a time that's never been so fake. You go, you go, Kevin. We're going. I'll be cheering in the background. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome, everybody, to the second ever Keep It Real series. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, with my friend Simon Maywaring. Simon, how are we doing today? Awesome. Schwitzing. It's hot in here. The AC doesn't work. I'm like awash with anticipation. That's right. We're both in California. Our, both of our AC is not working. And I got to send a little makeup in the mail. So I put some on. Apparently, I'm, it, I look a little bit better. I'm less glossy, but I don't know. We'll see. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry I didn't notice, but you look wonderful, Kevin. There was something uncomfortable about that, though, putting that makeup on. I was just like, I don't know how I feel about this. Well, my wife is a makeup artist, so I watched it all my life. But um, yeah, I actually think, you know, if now that we're all effectively kind of media companies ourselves and we're all putting ourselves out there on Zoom and so on, I've seen a lot of programming in and around the idea of how how you present on Zoom is really how you present yourself professionally now, your company and everything. So I think, you know, a little bit of powder, mate, never goes the wrong <laughs> never goes wrong. So are you suggesting more people should be putting a little powder on in their Zoom meetings? Look a little bit more You know what? I don't, I don't know about that, but here's what I would say. You know, like I, I do a lot of public speaking and I see a lot of speakers, sites and so on. And all of that business has gone away to some degree because of, you know, virtual events and so on. And so, you know, we've been because of COVID. And so we're doing these virtual events. And what I've noticed is a lot of people have built quite sophisticated, um, you know, camera angles and so on in their own rooms that build dedicated backdrops. I think people might've seen Anthony Robbins spend $8 million in a surround sound studio that, so he could have his unleash your, you know, your event, whatever it is with 23,000 people simultaneously and so on. So that's the extreme. So in the context of that, I think the more you can do to show up professionally on behalf of your company and your own personal brand, the better. Now, this is an interesting topic, and I'll forgo the introduction with everything else. I just want to stay on this really quick, Simon. Sure. You just mentioned this. So the, the, the day-to-day, the norm right now, COVID, being and having meetings over Zoom uh, when you're not face-to-face, what is that going to do to you? What do you think that's going to do for businesses, for decision-making, for relationships? How do you see this evolving over the next couple of years while we're still in this mode of uncertainty? Well, I actually think it's the physical equivalent of what's been going on through social media for a long time in that before social media, we all had to meet in person or we could talk on a mobile phone to some degree. But 
we all had this arm's length intimacy suddenly where you don't see friends for a year, but you follow them a little bit on Facebook or whatever, and you feel like you know each other. And you have friends that only existed on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever else. And so, you know, you didn't have that physical proximity, that direct contact, but you still had some degree of intimacy, shall we say. Now, our physical reality has kind of like been permanently reframed through the lens of Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever whatever else it is. And so I think it's going to have several effects. I think that we need to be more intentional and professional about how we present ourselves. I think we are all very happy that we don't need to wear shoes or pants anymore and spend most of our lives in tracksuits. Um, I think we are going to have to manage our energy in different ways. For example, you know, you can slump around a table at your office when you're having friends in a meeting and you're just like, or, you know, colleagues in a meeting, you're like, sure, okay, we'll do that next week or whatever. When you're, you know, you're on camera, you are literally, it's kind of like it forces the focal point on onto you. So if you're leading a meeting, if you're presenting, if you're showing up in a certain way, you've got a captive audience. And in as much as you have an audience, you need to be more um, presentational, shall we say. As for what it's going to do for the relationships, I don't know. I think it's so crazy right now. I think we're all, I think we were tethered to these markers for time, whether it was a calendar, Monday to Friday, taking a flight, not taking a flight, um, things we look forward to, holidays and so on. It's all been stripped away. And so it's like, you know, if you've ever been in the ocean and the waves have crashed and you're under the water and you're kicking out, but you don't know which way's up, like where's the bottom and where's up? I think a lot of us feel that way right now, which is how long is this going on? I'm doing the same thing every day. Where are the things that I used to look forward to? I don't have any plans for the weekend. Are the holidays going to be like this? And so we're very disorientated. When you're stuck in an avalanche, uh, Simon, just so you know this, next time you're yeah. stuck in an avalanche, you're supposed to spit and where the gravity goes. is. I actually kind of- had heard that. Um, we were actually working with a, a Swiss brand called Mammut, which is an alpine adventure brand. Absolutely. And so we... We watched some of their avalanche safety training videos and um, never get caught in an avalanche. That's the nut of it. Just don't get caught in an avalanche. Not good on so many levels. We've got a, an, uh, I had a guest on the show. They've got a new film coming out, a new documentary film. The reason I bring this up because you said avalanche. Yeah. It's called The Last Glaciers. And they're, oh. they're summoning uh, mountains in uh, Chile. Uh, they are going all around the world to talk about the external cost of capitalism and just the human population and climate change itself and our impact on it and what it's doing to these remote areas. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were just mentioning how we don't have any AC right now in Death Valley, just a few uh, hours away. It's 130 degrees there. Yeah. The yeah. warmest temperature it's ever been. So I'm kind of curious for like for you, like right now it's 2020. We're not doing the same things that we are doing, but our focus has maybe shifted a little bit. Where else do you think the climate change movement is getting uh, impacted right now? I yeah, it's a great question. I actually think that we saw this uptick in 2019 as someone who's been involved in it for 10 years. You know, people weren't really talking about it or it seemed to be a, a whipping boy in the media. You know, people who kind of talk about it, but then it go away. 2019, it was going like this because I think a lot of companies were starting to feel it personally in their supply chain, in the expectations of their employees and consumers. Like, what are you doing to solve for this issue? And then COVID trumped everything. And then Black Lives Matter doubled down. But I, unfortunately, I think 
Q3, Q4 in the United States is traditionally when a lot of extreme weather happens, tornadoes, hurricanes, you know, bushfires in California and so on. And it's going to be thrust back into the spotlight again. And here's the thing. If you're in a company, if you're a brand, if you're somebody who's actually doing something active to address climate change, this is a double-edged sword. Mother Nature becomes your advertising agency. Because every single time there's a tragedy or a calamity out there, it's thrust to the headlines, it's thrust into people's consciousness, and you're, you're doing something about it or you're not. And it gives you an opportunity to kind of like point back to your credentials or double down on what you're doing or deepen your relationships with your employees or inspire people to buy your, you know, packaging, uh, your, your products or advocate for your marketing because you're doing the right thing. So I think it is coming back at the end of this year. I think... Um, I think, you know, in the same way, you know, there's the sprinter or the high jumper, but then you've got the decathlon. We're all going to become a decathletes in terms of how many crises we can live with. Mm. We were living with climate before, and then we had to live with COVID. And now we've got social unrest and other issues around BLM and more. And I think we're just going to get more and more normalized or acclimatized to living in these, in, in the face of these multiple crises. So let's talk about maybe like the responsibility. We talked about this a little bit last time. Let's narrow it down a little bit. Responsibility yeah. of a company versus a human being. If you're mm-hmm. a human being and say, you know what, I want to give back to people who are starving, and I think that's right. the right thing to do. Sure. Now, when you have massive amounts of people, let's say they're coming into your neighborhood that now mm-hmm. need food, what are your thoughts on that? And do you, as a human being, have a responsibility for the masses? So that's I'm, I'm just trying to draw the distinction between an individual... Sure in a company, right? So the question is, for a movement, a philosophical movement like this, why do they start? Why do they start and why do they gain traction? And what is the difference between the philosophical viewpoint versus your Mm -hmm. personal obligation? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think there's different ways of approaching this topic. If the topic is, how do we solve for these incredible challenges at scale? And the broadly speaking, the answer is, hey, we've got to show up differently. Now, who is that? Is that the company? And is that limited to its employees and suppliers and consumers? Or is that everyone, especially when we talk in the context of stakeholder capitalism, which, you know, thanks to Larry Fink at BlackRock and the, the CEOs of the Business Roundtable and so many others, this is top of mind, which is a shift from shareholder capitalism, where it's just about how much money you make and how much return you give to investors versus stakeholder capitalism, which is, are you taking care of the future? Mm. And in that context, what I'm seeing is several things. One, for the last year or two, a lot of people have pointed to companies and said, hey, you're on the hook, you've got to fix this. Now, in some places, you're seeing people say, Actually, it's not about the company. That's not going to drive change. It has to be about the individual. You actually have the role of a company is to empower the individual to drive change themselves as opposed to the company driving change and the individuals off the hook. I actually think the truth is somewhere in between. I think if we really look at the goal here, which is that we all want to benefit from solutions to things like climate change. We all do. Whether you're a CEO or a mom taking your kids to sport, we all do. And in a sense, what you're hearing with stakeholder capitalism is we've all got to serve everyone. We can't just serve our bottom line in a company. We've got to serve everyone. But I don't think that's limited to the rewards. Stakeholder capitalism isn't just about, hey, companies have to do something right by everyone so everyone can get the benefit. I also think it's about responsibilities. 
Because if it's all based on shared values, you've got shared rewards, but you've also got shared responsibilities. So to your point, the individual's on the hook. I mean, if any of us are sitting here and thinking, hey, we're going to solve for these issues quickly enough and you know, um, at scale enough by leaving it to somebody else, I think we're actually fooling ourselves. I think we're all on the hook and we've got to do things differently. And let me be dramatic about it. I was, I was driving a, a Tesla before. A few years ago, I got a Tesla because I thought that was better than a combustion engine and so on. And then two years ago, I said, oh my God, I've got to walk out, talk and all this. Other. So I got rid of a car in LA two years ago. I haven't had a car in almost two years now. It was November the year before last or something. Um, and it's amazing how new ways of living or moving about open up when you make some conscious choices. So I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. All I'm saying is that I would never have thought it possible not to have a car in LA. But now I do, and it doesn't make any sense to me to have a car. Hmm. Now, yes, it's been inconvenient, and yes, I've had to change different things, and yes, it doesn't always work out. But I actually feel better for it. So I'm on the hook. You're on the hook. The CEO's on the hook. We're all on the hook because – if we're all not playing our part, any good work by done by a small group is going to be undone by those who aren't playing their part. So I think we're, we're all part of the solution. So where do you fall then on the spectrum of uh, just like small to large companies for, let's say, a smaller company uh, or a company that makes an inferior product, which is, happens all throughout throughout capitalism? that also has an inferior product that has a much worse uh, external cost on the environment, uh, for right. instance, clothing. Well, let's start another clothing company. And mm-hmm. let's, how, like, what are your thoughts on policy, on responsibility for someone making yeah. a, a new product? But it's also, it's like, we have another, you know, we have like, so who's it? Uh, we have t-shirts. We, we don't need t-shirts. more t-shirts. We have cookies. Yeah. No one needs another yeah. cookie, you know? Yeah. And so, A couple of random things I want to throw at you that kind of bounce around in my brain like speedballs and not quite sure what to do with them. I was listening to Lynn Twist not long ago who wrote the book, The Soul of Money. And she was talking and she runs this organization called the Pachamama Alliance, which takes CEOs and executives to the heart of the Amazon, to mother nature's, you know, biodiversity kitchen to give them an experience, direct personal experience with the tribes, men and women there and so on. And they come back changed and they change what they're doing. And it's amazing. Much respect for Lynn. She said that one of the distinguishing traits of indigenous people is that they only understand the idea of sufficiency in that if you are someone in a village or a tribe and you take more than you need, it actually qualifies in their mind as a mental illness. You are crazy because sufficiency is what allows you to get by and serve all others and the natural environment on which all everyone depends. And excess beyond sufficiency is counterproductive. It's madness. By the same token, we're seeing an emerging trend today now when new social entrepreneurs and solopreneurs are starting up these companies, not just to make the same stuff that do le- does less harm, but to actually do no harm at all. So there's companies out there like Grove Collaborative, which wants to be the first no-waste CPG company making consumer packaged goods. No waste. In fact, they want to be waste positive in the sense that they actually use waste as a resource, a valuable resource in the production of their products to reduce waste. And so to your point about a t-shirt company, I think, you know, if you look at, for example, Stella McCartney and Adidas, they just did a partnership about biodegradable fabrics. And these, the fabrics themselves completely biodegrade. 
or if you look at Adidas and Allbirds that came together, to otherwise competitors coming together to create the world's most carbon neutral shoe. So I think the opportunity, if you want to start a new company, T-shirt or otherwise, is not just to do less bad, but to do more good, to actually take waste and problems out of the, you know, the, the circular or otherwise economy and to have a net positive result. And I think that's really exciting. I think it's a huge innovation opportunity and a big unlock for a lot of people. I think that example is a great metaphor, if not a great example, that the business community can live by with your, with your tribes. I also think it's an example that's been going on uh, throughout the history of time. In, in right. the Bible, it's always saying, you know, uh, your purpose is to serve the community. Your wealth, the crops that you grow on your farm uh, are not yours alone. They are the Lord's. Right. You know, they you yeah, give it back sure. to the people. So yeah. it's the same thing yeah. there. And also, we had the pleasure of having Paul Stamets on the show. He's a mycologist. Yeah. Uh, yep. fantastic human being. And he was saying, you know, it's not the survival of the fittest. He's like, I want to rewrite this. He's like, it's the survival yeah. of the communities that uh, survived through the generation of, uh, or the, yeah, the generation of the excess of surplus of communities that survived. So in other words, it's not the survival of the individual that survives. It's the survival of the community that survives. So right. I think in this point in time right now, I, I don't know where we are, but someone told me the other day, it's like, hey, man, like you, this is a turning point in a civilization right now. Yeah, We are seeing uh, things rapidly accelerate, whether they're movements, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's um, products and, and services on the decline now. And people, there's a, now a big asymmetry in wealth. What do mm-hmm. you do? What is the right thing to do and how do we avoid this? For the future, what are your thoughts on that uh, in terms of surplus, and how does that pertain to corporate social responsibility versus an actual impact company? You know, it, it's interesting. A couple of things. You know, if you look at what Darwin wrote, he really talked about those companies, those that were would survive because they were the fittest, were the most that were willing to adapt. It was all about adaptation. It's their ability to adapt to the environment that is so important. And here we are through our own kind of misguided actions and judgments, we're in a real spot of trouble right now as, as a species, as a planet. So outright, we've got to adapt. Now, in terms of you know surplus and starting a company, whether it's an impact company or what do you do if you're a corporation and, and, and you've, you've got um, CSR initiatives, here's what I see coming. And I, you know, for those who are listening, uh, you know, I have a company that works with a lot of different brands across different industries. So my opinion is based on pattern recognition across footwear and apparel and beauty and all of these different categories of companies that are doing it for real. It's not kind of, I don't know, just a, a thought. Um, so there's a hockey stick of expectation coming towards business that will define who survives and who doesn't. What do I mean? Right now, we've got COVID, Black Lives Matter, and in the background of our minds, climate. But there's loss of biodiversity, there's ocean acidification, there is, and each one of these issues are hugely consequential in their own right, but together, it's seismic, the impact that they're going to have. It's going to, in the same way that COVID acutely compromised our daily experience of life by making us stay at home and prioritize toilet paper and a Wi-Fi signal over all things, all of these issues are going to transform our lives transform our lives, in which case when consumers and citizens and customers are thinking about where they're going to spend their money, 
they are going to increasingly look at companies and say, are you part of the problem or are you part of the solution? And backing out of the future towards us at 100 miles an hour is all of these compounding crises that are all interconnected and they're hurtling back from the future towards us today. And we're going to have this thrust, this hockey stick in a Silicon Valley sense of expectation on business. So whether you're a solopreneur, if you are an impact company, you can ride that, that uptick to gain market share, build your reputation, and accelerate your growth and impact very quickly. If you're a corporation that has innovative and evolving CSR strategies, you can capitalize on that as well. At the same time, those who don't are going to fall by the wayside, and I'll tell you why. The luxury of how fast and how far we change is going to be taken out of our hands. For example, COVID came along and COVID said, oh, I understand that you still want to go to work and go on holidays, but I checked and I don't care. Like COVID trumped everything. Pardon the word. COVID trumped everything. And in the same way, these issues are of such force and magnitude that they're going to just override any other considerations we have in our lives. So if, if companies and startups are not attuned to the need to lead with the impact that they're having through the lens of CSR or being an impact company outright, they're going to be left behind. And I believe the most iconic brands of the future will be those with the greatest social impact because of the world we're going to be living in. So you've already mentioned a few. Uh, what are some organizations that stick out to you that are being an example at this point in time early on? You know, I did. I mentioned, um, I think, well, I'll answer that in a different way. I'll say who are, because there's lots of iterative ways that companies are doing better, circular economy, retooling their supply chain, and so on and so on and so on. So I want to think of examples that are more dramatic in their shifts. For example, you know, Allbirds and, and Adidas, that partnership between otherwise competitors is a very, very interesting reframing of what competition looks like. In the same way the Sustainable Apparel Coalition that Patagonia and Walmart started all those years ago really said, wait a second, the best way for us all to succeed is for the whole industry to do better. And so they upgraded that. And, you know, actually, I have a podcast called Lead With We, and I was talking to Joey um, Bernstein, who is the CEO the other day. And he said, one of those things that people don't know is that if you're doing good, you can collaborate in very unexpected ways. So he said, for instance, people don't know this, but seventh generation and method, two competitors really worked together in the early days to build out the whole category of clean, responsible cleaning products. So they were competing for market share, but they worked together the same way with Dr. Bronner's and uh, Burt's Bees. They work together as well. So all of that to say is to answer your question is what's the most interesting right now is when companies are, are sort of suspending the primacy of their own self-interest and really looking to serving all stakeholders and therefore re reframing competitors as collaborators and partners for change. And here's what happens. And I've talked to a number of different brands about this. Um, when you actually work together to do good, it doesn't become an issue of who gets the credit. Oddly enough, everyone involved rises to the expectation that it's just the right thing to do. And they get a halo effect, not only through their participation, but through the sort of 
association with all the other partners, competitive or otherwise, who are also participating. Because I always say to people, what's, who gets the credit? You're doing good and you've got a CFO in the corner who says, show me the ROI, show me the money of do that doing good. Who gets the credit? How do you take that to the bank? And time and time again, I'm hearing from companies that the collaborative nature of you know, solving at scale lifts all boats and nobody suffers and it's a non-issue. And I find that really interesting. So a few specifics there, but I want to give some broader kind of responses to what I think is interesting right now. I like that concept. Now, would you consider a competitor, a stakeholder then in this standpoint? And like, how would you approach somebody who you maybe have been competing against for years on end? Yeah, um, I think it all comes back to your fundamental purpose. I think if you're, you know, by definition, a purpose is really of being of service to something higher than yourself. And your company and its products are the tools, the levers you pull to execute against that higher purpose. In that context, a competitor, if they have a purpose, they have a higher purpose themselves, and there's an alignment between you in some way, they can quite justifiably say you're not a competitor. You are a fellow enabler of the change that we want to see in the world. And the great thing about this moment in time is that by doing good, you can leverage the market forces that will translate to business growth. Why? Employees, consumers, investors want to buy, work for, and invest in companies that are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Why? Because the future consumer, millennials and Gen Z across all the data say they want to support companies that are doing good because they see that their future is compromised. Why? Because if we're facing a challenged future, at the end of the day, all of this talk and all of this BS is really about relevance. Are you ready, relevant to the future or not? And if you're not meaningfully and measurably solving for some of the challenges we're facing in the future, it's not do good CSR off to the side. This is going to be the core focus of business and the preoccupation of people who buy your stuff. If you're not doing that, you're going to be irrelevant. And so I think what we're seeing right now is a reframing of competition in a more collaborative sense. And I've seen that word cooperation or something where they try and put the words together and you go, I can't unsee that, make it stop. But we're starting to see rather than co comp competition, collaboration in service of everybody, not just in terms of impact, but also growth for all the companies involved. So is that the message then? Is that the message to big brands listening to this or just uh, anytime you speak with them, hey, reach out to your competitors. We need to collaborate. We need to show the people, the citizens, the stakeholders, the communities, our suppliers, the distributors that we, that we care, that we care about their future as well. Let's collaborate. Let's build our robust supply chain, organic cotton. Let's do, uh, let's use uh, reusable materials um, that are collected on from waste and turn those in the products together. Is that sure. the message? And is that what you're seeing? The message is different than that. I mean, when I speak to clients, and we work with solopreneurs, high growth companies, and very large corporations as well. So this isn't just big company stuff. The question is, we've got to do a lot more than care. I think for a long time, um, saying you wanted to do good was enough, or managing the optics of doing good through an advertising campaign or whatever, bought you certain goodwill. But now we're beyond that. 
the consumers, stakeholders, employees, partners, spouses, whatever, they're all too well-informed now and too concerned about their future to stop at caring. They want to see the meaningful but measurable impact that you're having. So it's no longer just integrity of intent. It's integrity of action. Are you moving the needle? And if so, how? And do it transparently with accountability. And tell us what you're doing well, what you're doing wrong, and what you're and how you're working on those areas you've got to grow in. And so when we work with a company, we look at them and we say, okay, let's do an audit of you know uh, how clear we are about our purpose, how it's showing up internally and externally, and how accountable we are for what we're doing. And then depending on what the result is, we walk them, we walk them through that process. I would also argue it's uh, following those constraints. Uh, I think I mentioned like the Patagonia example or say Cook Ventures. We had the CEO of Cook Ventures on. They are amazing company. And amazing. I'll tell you why in a second. Amazing. I, I think they're amazing too. And, and, and that's what they're pursuing though. They say, uh, I think at the very beginning, it was like, well, we need meals for uh, Blue Apron that are healthy, that we're going to have healthier individuals. Now, when we sort these, source these products, we start to learn a little bit more and more about the environmental impact from these animals. Uh, these cows with six stomachs. Why are we feeding them, you know, terrible food that's causing them to have these explosive burps? Uh, that's producing methane. Why aren't we using regenerative agriculture techniques that are going to increase our yields uh, and also build out biodiversity that's going to eat uh, bugs and, and things instead of using these pesticides that are collapsing our ecosystems? By right. following that constraint, by following something that is, I guess, the unknown they are able to work together and, and find and innovate around ways uh, to make healthier products and healthier people as well. No, I think Cook's Venture is a great example. And I was very impressed with them when I, I saw them recently, had not heard of them before. And the reason is, well, firstly, I just want to call out something. I'm someone who walked away from meat a while ago, way too late as an Australian. I grew up eating beef all my life. Guilty as charged, but done that recently. But the whole prospect of being a living, sentient being like cattle, and then being felt fed this horrible meal and food that makes you compulsively burp and fart before you're actually harvested is just unconscionable. And it just adds insult to injury. So I just wanted to get that out there. But then Cook's Venture is really interesting for a, a very important reason. So, so they, okay, continue. Sorry. Yeah, they, they offer an ecosystem solution. And here's what's going on. If you do, uh, you probably in your conversation with the CEO touched on the fact that a lot of these industry, poultry, cattle, and so on, are monopolies. There's two or three companies that really have a stranglehold on the entire industries. And so the industry is disincentivized to change or innovate because there's one or two companies. Um, it starts with T, um, the chicken company. Anyway, uh, uh, um, that, that because they have a monopoly on the industry. And so you can't really incrementally or iteratively innovate to change the industry because the industry has a stranglehold on it. So you've got to offer a completely viable alternative supply chain to do it. And so what they're doing, both in terms of the chickens they, they you know, raise, how they're fed, um, how they're you know, taken to market and what's chemicals are using like they're really soup to nuts you know from farm to table really really thinking through what is a better alternative um so i i think why i'm excited about companies like that is that when they really clear-eyed look at the reality of an industry 
and recognize there's a stranglehold on it that can't be broken despite any number of good intentions, you have to go away and build the entire industry all over again somewhere else. And that's what they're doing. So I've got a buddy of mine whose family owns one of the largest like dairy farms in Bakersfield, California. And he, I just, he's a friend of my roommate. I just met him, you know, down here, we're talking. And of course I want to talk about his business and and kind of what he's doing and how, how he sees his business and its impact in society. And, you know, really just came down to, as uh, he said, reduced costs and increased profitability. That's what it came down to. So he had a a video of a cow that's going around on the conveyor belt. Uh, Oh, Hey, what's this new piece of technology? Oh, you know, it's, it's going to cut our costs, increase our profitability. We're we're able to, you know, fire or let go like 10 employees because of this. Like, like it's a good thing, you know? Right. (laughs) And so I just want to say, that's how they think. It's not like they're bad people, but that's their business model. Yeah. How, I mean, you deal with similar stories, similar reactions to when people uh, express your vision to them about their role and its impact in society. What would you say to someone like that? Well, I think there's a couple of things I'd say. One is that the human family depends on the planet on which we all live. And when that becomes sufficiently compromised, we're all in trouble. So that's the biggest sort of aperture, the biggest kind of context. Then I'd step in and I'd say, brands can't survive in societies that fail. So if there's no middle class to buy your product, you're not going to be able to do well. If there's no infrastructure to support, you know, your factories and whatever else, you're not going to do well. And then I'd step in one step further and say, there is a huge innovation opportunity that no one sees clearly enough right now, which is we have been so self-serving, so self-destructive and so short-sighted in the industries and the motivations behind those industries that we've engineered for the last 50 or 60 decades, uh, last five or six decades, that it's almost a no-brainer about how we can do it better and smarter and drive growth by solving for the problems that they're already causing. Why? Because we're at this really interesting moment in time where the necessary coalition of change agents has finally come together, employees, consumers, and investors all want companies to do good. So it's kind of like, and I'm oversimplifying here, but what the hell? You've got all these numbskull ideas going over here. It's an Australian expression. Thick as planks because you're putting yourself out of business, the planet out of business, and you're pissing people off. And then over here is a whole group of people who want you to do it differently. And they will buy your stuff over their stuff if you do it differently. Mm. So go do that. And you don't need to do much to do it better because it's being done in such a self-destructive and self-interested way. And so there are those who are looking at this current moment in time with distress and they're saying, this is nuts. You know, the future is gloomy and so on. But there is though there are those who are looking and even to some degree, including COVID, and I'll come back to that, who are looking at it and saying, This is the unlock that we've been waiting for. You know, if you think about it in life, relationships or people only change when they hit a crisis. You know, you change how you behave in a relationship where it reaches a breaking point. We're at a breaking point as a species on this planet. And so we've got to do something differently. And when you look at it that way and you go, oh my gosh, there is so much opportunity out there to innovate in ways that will do good. 
then suddenly the future doesn't look so gloomy. And even with COVID, the loss of life is unconscionable, amoral, unnecessary, and just heartbreaking for so many people. But there is those thin silver linings, or there are those thin silver linings where you have appreciated the simple things more. You have spent time with family. You have done the simple things. You have stopped running around like a headless chook on planes, you know, dashing forward to meetings because we can do it just as effectively on a Zoom. And we have witnessed with our own eyes the true regenerative capacity of nature that when it's left alone to do what it knows how to do, it is this flourishing, abundant, limitless um, garden of opportunity in terms of providing everything we need and, and you know, the future we want for our children. So I think that was a long answer, but I, I, I just think that uh, for those who are sitting on the sidelines or aren't interested in being purposeful, they are putting themselves out of business because they're not clear-eyed about the reality of the world we live in anymore and what consumers, investors, and um, employees are going to reward. And I think a lot of those stakeholders and the people that say we want these products that you keep referring to, these sustainable products, these uh, products that aren't, aren't detrimenting the, the environment. I think these these people feel a common sense that of blame almost for this, like you mentioned, those 50 decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are we for, first question? Are we responsible for our ancestors and their uh, their thinking, their logic and what mm-hmm. they have done? Uh, as you say, we're running around numb school. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second thing is, is that example I gave you, it's a family business. He's taking over. What responsibility do you have as a father, as a family member, as a parent? There is no point in time where you can't reinvent what you're doing. And there's no more important motivation than what's going on right now. So if it's a family business or not, you're lucky enough to have a, a start in life. Most people don't. But it's your responsibility to serve the future of that business based on the reality of the world you live in. And so you've got to innovate and iterate that business. Nothing lasts forever in terms of how you go about a business. So you've got to evolve it. But I think the larger um, opportunity or is, is to really embrace the possibility which is put in front of us all right now, which is we have been given great cause and incentive to rethink the way we go about everything. And to do it in a way where the marketplace will reward it and it will drive growth as a function of the good that we're doing. I don't think it was possible until now because you needed the pain points to be acute enough in our lives to really motivate the behavior so that the marketplace would reward it. You know, if you look at it, It's only been the span of one human being's lifetime in which we've screwed up this planet. If you, you know, the industrial revolution onwards, you could argue in the last hundred years, we've ruined everything. Think about that. All of these other species have been on the planet for hundreds, if not thousands of years in various forms as they've evolved and so on. And we come along in our wisdom at the top of the food chain, right? And we take one lifetime to screw everything up. And so I think, you know, we have a huge opportunity to actually regenerate the planet on which we live, to undo, you know, the mess that we've made and to re-engineer business and capitalism to that end in a way that will unlock a whole new marketplace and new dynamics. I think that's an interesting point. But at the same time, 
there's been more healthy human beings on this planet than ever. Sure. I think that's the reason for capitalism. I think that because products are now, like it's the distribution game. If you can distri- mm-hmm. distribute your products more to anybody else, then you win. You make more money and you're able to serve more people and those people are able to live healthier lives. So now what is the status from each generation to each generation? What becomes of non-value? Like for instance, you know, years ago, uh, we had uh, grocery stores where you'd come in, you just take your, you know, uh, canisters and used to shop the old way, weigh it and put it on there. And that was it. And that was mm-hmm. awesome. And now we have grocery stores full of everything you'd want and excess. And we don't really need that, but we have them and it's better than ever. But we just haven't really realized that. Like, how do you stop that beast? How do you stop that animal where no matter how much better you do, you're still going to have a negative impact on society well a couple of things firstly there are very there is a very small minority on this planet you know in terms of human beings who enjoy the type of lifestyle you're talking about and it's getting less and less every day this abundance that you're talking about you know so the fact that it's incredibly good for a few does not make it okay for the many that are suffering and in fact i characterize it like this and it's not my metaphor but you know all of these people that are gagging on all the abundance, the, the, the small minority, the, the 1% and beyond, it's like those who are partying in the penthouse of a building that's on fire. You know, the fire is at the ground floor level, and, it's, and this is the, the planet and all these other issues we're solving for. Now, I agree with you. People are living longer. There are less unhealthy people. There's more opportunities than ever. If you look at the Bill and Melinda Gates sort of letters that they put out each year and so on, they really point out all the ways that the world is getting better. At the same time, we're failing to solve for issues that can just kneecap the entire deal. Like look at the way that COVID came along. Suddenly the global economy, even in the first few months, lost upwards of $7 trillion. Work was shut down. Thousands of businesses closed. Millions of jobs were lost overnight, overnight. So we don't need to kind of postulate as to how dramatic the impact of something like a crisis can be. We're living through it right now. And we have multiple crises like that, like loss of biodiversity, they, call, they say is the silent killer. Because when the food chain breaks down and all of this abundance that's dependent on that food chain breaks down, it'll be too late for us to fix it. You can't reanimate a species. You can't rebuild you know, food chains and so on if they no longer exist. So all of that is to say, yes, and some of the statistics, the world is getting better for many people and their lives and through those different metrics. At the same time, we're failing to solve for problems that can be our complete undoing. And so we need to think about what we're doing in new ways. And I, I, I pause whenever I hear anyone point to how well things are going only because if you look at the the disproportion the disparity of wealth out there in the united states and beyond now what's hidden in those numbers and figures is an almost endless amount of silent suffering where families don't have food in the fridge kids aren't getting meals at school um mental challenges you know because young men don't have jobs or prospects in the future, you know? And so I think to some degree, 
capitalism is guilty of having a wonderful advertising campaign where it shows you these images of abundance on those channels that are uniquely there for those who are enjoying that abundance. Yet the reality, if you look at, you know, places outside the United States and Northern Europe and other places like that, you know, it's very, very different and lives are very, very compromised. And I think that's the reality. And it's funny, that myopia is symptomatic of the problem because we're looking at capitalism through the lens of those who are benefiting most rather than everybody. And if we looked at the state of humanity through the lens of everybody all around the world, I think we'd have a very sober assessment of just how well we're doing. I had a few motivational leadership coaches on the podcast since we last spoke, Simon, and and I asked them all about what is success, and none of them had a monetary value in it, even though Webster's might. It's all about what's between the years, and what's that to you? And so when we talk about beneficial, and you talk about the the penthouse, but you also say that people live in the penthouse, no one wants to live there right now. People in America are depressed. People aren't having a good time up here. And yet every single person that lives in America is wealthier than I think 3% of the, like it's not even close, like in terms of wealth. So who really is winning in this game? And I also want to throw back, I think people do have, like I'm saying that grocery store example, people in poverty have grocery stores. They're everywhere, anywhere you go around the world, except for with the exception of a few places that have products in them that help them live better, better and healthier lives. For instance, a water bottle, something like that. So there are those things everywhere. You know, how much innovation do we need? How much is capitalism or an actual business helping uh, people in poverty to bring them up to where we are, which is in a society that where we we don't like one another. We're turning the country apart and we live in this penthouse. And at the end of the day, we go home and we're not happy. Yeah, I think what you're really pointing to is a very powerful distinction between wealth and, and well-being. I think for a long time, you know, on the strength of greed is good and all of this sort of thing, and and really the ability to develop markets and manipulate markets and develop media and manipulate media, there's been this flight towards, you know, how much can we all gather for ourselves? But only now are we literally looking at the cost of that. And it's really showing up in powerful ways. You've got everyone from uh, Bill Gates to Larry Fink to Warren Buffett all questioning the amount of money they have and how much they should be taxed. You've got, you know, uh, the, the, the capital markets really reconsidering what they prioritize. And you've got countries like Iceland and New Zealand looking beyond the GDP, the gross domestic product, um, to criteria like the, the, the World Happiness Index and, you know, well-being, which is a series of different metrics. Because at the end of the day, you're right. There's a lot of people that are extraordinarily wealthy that are miserable being that way. And I think we all know wealthy people who where a certain amount of money doesn't make them happier. And there's a lot of statistics to that end as well, breakpoints beyond which, you know, that no amount of money seems to make people demonstrably and personally happier. So all of that is to say that if we look back over the last hundred years, I think it has been an experiment to prioritize certain things, most of, you know, first and foremost, wealth as the path to happiness. But I think there's a serious reconsideration of that happening because A, it's not being spread evenly. B, those who have the vast majority of it are necessarily happier. And C, it's coming at the cost of the planet and our future. In which case you ask me, what does it mean to me? You know, I've been lucky enough 
to be in a position to start a company and survive, which is really hard. You know, I have no, you know, my parents are, my family's in Australia. My father passed long ago when I was young. There's no family money. There's, it was just chutzpah and just like, no, there's no investors. There's no nothing. It was freaking stupid. It was like dumb. So survived. Here we are. Thank God. Thank God. Touch wood every day. And uh, beyond that, you know, I'm lucky enough to start a company, but also share some thinking that people have resonated with and it's resonated with people and do some speaking and all that stuff. And I've, as a function of that, I've been around a lot of well-known people, like people that everybody knows. And here's what I've noticed in talking privately or having dinners with them afterwards or whatever. These are billionaires. These are heads of state. They're whatever it is. Everybody thinks that fulfillment is an outside-in job. If I get the awards, if I get the recognition, if I get the salary, if I get the accolades, if I get the red carpet, then I'll be happy. But what I've discovered and pieced together from all of these different people is that fulfillment, which is what I hope to find, is an inside-out job because you fulfill yourself by what you give of yourself to others. I used to think you get fulfillment, you know, it's coming towards you. It's going to fill you up. This is going to be awesome. Consciously or not, I'm sure that's what I thought. But now I've realized it's what you give to others. You fill yourself up from the inside out. And that's why so many successful people then commit their lives to service, then commit their money to service. You're seeing the giving pledge where Bill Gates and Zuckerberg and all of these others are giving away the vast majority of their wealth to others. And ultimately, I think for me, it is fulfillment. I would like to think that there was meaning or significance to my time here on the planet. And how do I do that? Well, I I work towards fulfillment. And what does fulfillment look like? It's being of service to others. Well, how do I do that? Well, I happen to know about this branding and marketing world. And so I'm going to help others get there. And that's my personal story. But every single person listening or anyone's going to see see this has a unique set of skills based on the unique journey they've had and all the innate talents that you possess that you can take to market in ways that will be of service to others that will provide the fulfillment that you want and that to me is what's most important there it is again the generosity of surplus it is it is i mean you know look at covid when people actually suspended their self-interest of necessity in real time Altogether, I don't think we've ever in the history of humanity had a crisis affect the whole planet that was bigger than humanity itself all at once, causing such acute pain. Not even the world wars, you know, there were various you know, countries and uh, factions involved and, and it was sort of its own creation. We made this ourselves. This was bigger than us. This was sort of all came from mother nature. And it's, as was it, uh, um, Sarah, the Duchess, Duchess of York said, York said, Mother Nature has come along and sent us to our room to think about what we've done. <laughs> you know, that's what's happened. So, uh, you know, I think all of us are being forced to reconsider how we go about living our lives, the role that business can play, the current expression of capitalism, because it does evolve, it is mutable, and how we can actually better serve our own happiness and the happiness of others by looking at life more collaboratively rather than purely in terms of self-interest. I think that's what's going on. And I'm, I'm excited about it. So the, the greatest generation, you know, they lived through the Great Depression. And that was their calling, their time. They came from nothing. They, all those values were built into them. And they stepped up to the plate. They, you know, came back from wars. They were celebrated. They 
uh, built the economy back up and they and they did it with all this united effort. Yeah. What's what's the unification right now that we're needing or that yeah. we're lacking right now? I feel like there's so many distorted messages out there. To you, what would be your message and your inspiration to either the next generation or your own? Well, this will sound a little bit self-serving, but it's something I've been very focused on because, you know, as a someone who's been in advertising and marketing all my life, I think about the story we need to tell because I believe the future is a story we write every day. We get out of bed in the morning and depending on the actions and choices we make, that creates, we co-create the future. And so I actually think, and I, I want to point back to some historical precedents as well. If you look back at Martin Luther King Jr. and his I Have a Dream speech, there was a pent-up cultural desire for us to move beyond this systemic racism. And, it, and, and this speech gave expression, it gave narrative to that. Or if you look at um, JFK when he was president and talked about you know the race to the moon and the moonshot and so on, it galvanized a decade of innovation in this country. It provided the narrative that allowed everyone to funnel their energies into this storyline that then created the future. And we need a new story, a new narrative. <laughs> And the reason I started my company, We First, was as a counterpoint to what I, after looking long and hard at the global economic meltdown in 2007 and 2008, simplified down to what I said was a me first mentality. It's a common expression, me first. But if you really went to the root of the problem where Wall Street and investment banking and all that sort of thing lined their own pockets and did various things in terms of the housing market and the banks and so on, that it really had a knock-on effect on Main Street, on Wall Street, um, across the US and then Iceland and the Gulf states and all around the world. There really was a fundamental me-first mentality that allowed that to happen. So the narrative that I believe that we need to do to look at is really a we-first mentality. And what does that mean? It means we go from me to we. We really think about ourselves as part of the human family as stakeholders in our society and well-being and planet and future. And it's not just me to we, it's me to we first, where we put the priority, the interest, the, 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 the well-being of the collective first, as opposed to me first, which is I'm going to climb over the back of others, profit for profit's sake. I'm going to take as much as I can for myself. And we saw the consequences of that. So it's a, it's a personal answer, and it's something that I'm very passionate about and devoted the last 10 years to. But we need a new narrative, a story for the future. And as opposed to me first, it needs to be we first. And here's the funny thing about it. The individual parts, their survival, their abundance, turns on the integrity of the whole. Mother Nature can do anything if Mother Nature is allowed to do what it does. But we've compromised it on so many fronts, it's collapsing. Humanity in the form of business and capitalism and society can achieve so much if we make sure that the system on which it depends is sustainable. But again, through disparity of wealth and all of these other issues, we've let it atrophy. But when, in the, by the same token, if we restore the planet, if we rethink the role of business to better serve all stakeholders, then we will all individually be better off because the collective is working. The whole has integrity to it. And so this is not about being goody two-shoes or well-intentioned or drinking the purpose Kool-Aid. It's what's the smartest way to be successful in a way that's sustainable, not just for you and everybody else, so we can all thrive. And that's what I'm deeply committed to. So those that work together will survive together. 
I, you know, there's that expression. I think it's an old African proverb. You know, you can uh, you can go quickly alone, or go a long way together. You know, and I totally butchered that, but um, you know, I think there's real power in collaboration, and I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of that. You know, it's funny. And another Australian actually told me that quote. It's that you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go a long ways, go to go with the group. And that was right. the uh, founder of G Divers. <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, they're a great company out of Australia about the diaper company. By the way, I just did something on this that I've never done in my life before. I was looking at both screens and looking at you with one eye and I saw one eye move and the other stay still. And I've seen people do that at parties all of my life, but never been able to do it. But today is that day, Kevin. Today is the day that my eyes moved independently. And for that, I will forever be grateful. And, and well, there's only one, one Australian at the party, right? You're not allowed to have more than one. No, absolutely. We Australians, you don't know this so in yeah, the back yeah. of our... Yeah, in the back of our passport, it says, make sure there's only one of you at every party, yeah. but there's always got to be one of you at every party. That's why wherever you go, there's always one bloody Australian in the corner. And you're like, why is there always one Australian? When two Australians turn up, we look at each other and go, are you going to leave or am I going to leave? Yeah. That's not really true. So, I just made that up. Unwritten rule. Unwritten rule. Yeah. Well, Simon, uh, we're going to let you get your eyes checked. Uh, Thank you. Appreciate you. We're going to stop you there. What a strong message today, though. I mean, we started out just talking about purpose, uh, brands, movements. Why do they start? Uh, are markets free? What is wealth? What is success? Uh, and all in between. So, again, Simon, the Keep It Real series number two. Appreciate you coming back on. Fantastic. The Real Ears podcast. What do you got? And just thank everybody for listening, you know, and if you want to kind of find out more, I'm talking to all these companies all the time. Like you're lucky when you run a company like WeFirst to hear from in the engine room of all of these companies. And just like Kevin and, and Real Leaders, you know, we get some very special guests on a podcast I have. It's called leadwithwe.com. Just go to leadwithwe.com. If you want to hear what's going on inside these companies that are retooling themselves. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons Kevin and I connect is, we're both deeply committed to to getting the insights and the the innovations out there so that everyone can change together. So these are just resources for everyone so you can succeed and make a difference at the same time. So, yeah. That's right. And, and just like we said at the beginning of the show, who said you can't build a relationship over a Zoom or a right. podcast or something right. like that? Who right. said that? No, I didn't say that. Sure as hell didn't say that. Anyways, Simon, appreciate you coming on the show. Before we leave this show, though, folks, we also want you to check out Simon's podcast. But if you're an impact company listening to this, and I know we first has been on this list multiple times. I don't know if we've seen them sign up yet. We're going we're gonna to need them to sign up uh, today. That's the Reelers Impact Awards, folks. All you got to do is go online to Reelers.com and sign up today. There's three. There's really just three questions that you need to put in there. I think, yeah, there's a little link flying in here. It's uh, your 2017 and 2019's revenue and your B Impact score. Uh, folks, you're going to be featured and recognized as a impact leader, a global impact leader around the world. And be recognized in our publication that serves 30,000 CEOs in 135 countries and be in newsstands all around the world. But today, I don't know, Simon, I think I think you said you're not going to be flying in airports anymore, right? Well, you know what? Like you, we all had to travel a lot before. And I'm so loving my time with my family, my wife and my two daughters. It's been amazing. We've actually got to know each other as adults because it's sort of that empty nest thing. Like they're 21 and 18 and they're about to leave. And mom and dad were about to go exponentially uncool. You know, right. like, oh, I'm going home. I'm going to do my laundry. But my life is cool now. We've had four or five months of hanging out together. And we've actually, hopefully, and I'm just jinxing it right now. You know that. 
learned how to be adults together. And it has been the greatest gift for which I will forever be grateful. And I'm going to try and protect because they're going through such an important period of change and you get to see where they're going. And if you really listen and pay attention, um, you can be invited into their life at this next stage rather than being left behind as a parent. And I'm just like, I hope my daughters aren't watching this. Don't, Daddy's not consciously really thinking this way. We're just getting on, right? So don't, uh, don't change anything. Anyway, it well, is. That's what you said uh, last show, though. I mean, you asked Branson, you know, what's your success? And he just said family. Yes, I did. And, and uh, yeah, and it was all about family. And, um, and I will share something random. Can I share something random? Absolutely, yeah. You get all the time okay. in the world. I have two daughters. And... I used to make a big mistake. The last job I had, staff job, I was a worldwide creative director on Motorola at an advertising agency called Ogilvy. And you're always on and you're flying around the world and you're doing all of this stuff. And we launched the Razor phone and other things like that. And I used to come home and walk through the door with the same energy that I used at work. And you know, that sort of energy where, you know, you, you change the air in the room and everything stops because mom or dad's home and they've been at work, right? And then through the wise counsel of other people, I changed two things. And these are a gift from other gentlemen who I've met. One is never say the first word when you come in and home. And to this day, 12 years later, I never say the first word. I walk in the door, I look at them, I smile, and I put my stuff down. And I do not say anything. In the first three, three to four months, they were like, do we stop now? And then the, the next six months, they were like, oh, we're going to talk a bit. Now they just ignore me completely, which is awesome. Um, but the, it really helped them understand that their voices should never be shut down, especially with young ladies, simply because an adult and especially a man walks in the room. The second thing that somebody taught me was whenever you get to talk to um, your kids, Get down lower than them. Sit on the floor so that your voice, the depth of your voice, the, the, your height, the tone, anything about you could be misperceived as um, intimidating to a younger child. And so I did at the same time, would always sit on the floor. Things are going well and you want to congratulate. They're sitting on the bed. You talk to them. You know, if someone's rude or someone's impatient with somebody else, you've got to talk to them. You sit on the floor and talk to them. <clears throat> Those two things transformed my relationship with them. And what it is, how touch would hopefully allow them to become is what I observe, which are these very self-possessed, self-assured, confident young women that have their own mind and speak it very readily and really are ready to take on the world. And so it's completely unrelated to what we were talking about, but just on the spirit of daughters and family and so on, um, they, those two things were a gift given to me by two other gentlemen way back when. And if this is an opportunity for more people to share that with others, then so be it. I don't think that's unrelated at all. I think that's right on point. We're just talking about family and responsibility, and that's just real, and that's what this show is all about. So if you won't say the first, but I'll say the last. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show. For everyone listening out there, I'm Kevin Edwards. Uh, keep it real, folks. And thank you for tuning in to number two of the Keep It Real series with Simon Moore. Simon, take care. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, Real Leaders, for listening to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast, the second ever Keep It Real series with We First Branding's founder and CEO, Simon Mainward. Folks, we're trying to get as many podcasts out as possible. We're doing about two or three a week. And if you want to attend live, go online, realleaders.com, podcast, events, 
Realleaders.com podcast events to RSVP for one of a dozen episodes with leaders from all walks of life, folks. That's right. We have one coming up on algorithmic leadership, conscious leadership, customer experience leadership, and of course, the Keep It Real series returning on Monday, September 21st at 4 p.m. Pacific with Simon Mayweather. If you want to join the episode, folks, because you missed the last one, go online, reallyers.com, podcast events, reallyers.com, podcast events. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.